Please pray with me. Holy One, as we gather on this beautiful Labor Day weekend, we give thanks for all the blessings in our lives. We give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the ability to gather here together as people who love you and long to know you more. And so we pray that you'll take these words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, and use them to transform our own hearts and lives, that we may become the people you need us to be in the world today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So yes, here we are, Labor Day, can you believe it? Oof. The official end of summer, and whatever delightful, lazy, hazy days that you've been enjoying, trips up north, backyard barbecues, fun in the sun. Today also brings a conclusion to our summer romp through the parables of Jesus. And so I thought it would be appropriate to close by considering the final paragraphs of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which include a very provocable, a provocative parable or two. Now, the way Matthew lays it out, this is Jesus' inaugural sermon, his keynote speech, the platform on which he builds the whole of his ministry, and it lays out everything that Jesus believes and stands for. And he presents it to us as a blueprint, the foundational basis for building a life of faith. Now, of course, Jesus starts this essential sermon, as you know, with the Beatitudes, surprising us all by lifting up the unlikely, the lowly, the humble, the grieving, the persecuted, as first in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus moves on from there to tell us that he has come to fulfill the letter, uh, to fulfill the law. And then he tells us what he means by that in such a way as to ratchet up the bar of expectation to a new level of goodness and righteousness that goes way beyond fulfilling the letter of it. And then Jesus proceeds to poke holes in the thin veneer of our own religiosity and calls us instead to authentic, faithful living that is grounded always in the gospel foundation of loving God and loving neighbor. And finally, as we might fully expect, Jesus wraps it all up with a charge to his listeners, an altar call that asks each one of us to choose what kind of home for faith we want to build. So listen for God's good news and Jesus' challenge to you and to me as he summarizes his message at the end of this Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. But the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Thus you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so, Kirk in the hills. What are you building? What are you building on? What are you building with? And when the rough winds and storms of life shake you to your foundations, will you stand or fall? This is the final point for us to ponder, for all of us in our individual lives, for us as a community of faith, and I think that it's not coincidental that immediately after posing this question, we learned that the crowd was astounded at Jesus' teachings because he spoke with such inherent authority. He didn't cite the scholars. He didn't quote the rabbi or the Talmud. Jesus' teachings made a deep impression on his listeners because they rang true. They hit home. They were true because they came from the heart of God and the Spirit confirmed it in the heart of anyone who listened from the heart. I so wish I could have met Jesus in the flesh, don't you? He must have been an amazing presence, so clear, so grounded, so centered that he could hold his own against the most respected authorities of his day and he could speak truth to power and courage to the powerless. And he could summon faith and healing in the midst of illness and calm in the face of storms. He could stand silent and impassive in front of unjust accusers and then rise to life and love in the aftermath of death. Even now, his presence is discernible if we stop and listen from the heart long enough to feel it. And Jesus asks you and me today to examine what we are building on the foundation of faith that he has laid for us. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, the most arresting part of this passage is the revelation, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What do you think he meant by that? Who was he pointing to? 
I suspect that perhaps from time to time we are all in the viewfinder here. The reality that simply claiming Jesus as Lord is not enough. And that's why he sets it up with words about trees and fruit. What does your life reveal about your faith? Does the way you live and the way you invest your time and your money and your relationships, does any of that show that it is infused with love? Does any of it point Godward? And that's why he sets it up as a building problem. What is your foundation? What do you stand on when it comes to the things that matter? Because just because you say, Lord, Lord, does not mean that you get any of this at all. Now, ever since the fourth century, when the Emperor Constantine rallied all the church leaders around to craft a statement of faith that today we call the Nicene Creed, ever since then, historically, traditionally, fundamentally, politically, our proclamation of our adherence to Jesus' teachings, our claim that we are Christian, has been taken to mean that we subscribe to a set of dogmas, a set of doctrines, orthodoxies, a stamp of admission, a tattoo of righteousness that says, I'm a Christian. I know what's right. I'm a Christian. Let me in. I'm a Christian. Vote for me. To which Jesus says, eh, maybe not so much. Everyone who says, Lord, Lord, does not necessarily know me. By your fruits, you will know them, Jesus says. And the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Many take the first road. Very few find the second. Father Richard Rohr spells it out in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the wide road is what today we call groupthink, copycat consciousness, pop psychology. It's the easy road where we unthinkingly buy into what somebody else sells us. It's the reassuring ground of a certain self-righteousness, of morality measurements, where there is a clear standard, a directive of right and wrong, good and bad, in and out. It is the ordinary and predictable path of all religious and political cultures that keep us focused on issues like sexuality or abortion or prayer in schools, that keep us fixated on erecting barriers, drawing lines on the sand, raising walls of meritocracy, keep us trapped in this measurement system. The easy road offers an easy way for us to feel good about ourselves, self-righteous, superior to others. We're the in crowd. Left to ourselves, this is what we almost always do. So many people wonder today why the church, not just this church, but all churches around us, are struggling to attract young people or to retain the folks who are already here. And we may be tempted to think that somehow the message of the gospel has been drowned out by the competing messages of our culture and time, consumerism and individualism, by an ethos of divisiveness and anxiety-raising headlines 
a culture of competing commitments, of overscheduling that makes church just one more thing on an overfull calendar, the thing that asks too much. But I propose to you that what has surfaced time and time again in recent surveys of the American population is that it is not that people have dropped out of church because it asks too much of them, but rather that folks are looking elsewhere for their spiritual fulfillment because the church asks too little. According to author Jake Medor, the problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life that leaves us anxious, lonely, uncertain of how to live together in community with other people. And the wounds and anxieties provoked by our current order are just not the sort that can be managed or life hacked away. They're resolved only by changing one's life, by changing one's heart, by becoming a radically different sort of person belonging to a radically different sort of community. And the tragedy of American churches is that we have been so caught up in this same world that we have failed to offer clear witness to the invitation to transformation that is what Jesus always invites us into. In our own anxiety for the future of the church, we tend to look back over our shoulders at bygone days when the church pews were full and we could rest in a cultural Christianity that made us feel secure. But the narrow road is what Jesus calls us to, the road much less traveled. Jesus calls us to a way of life that is far less certain in fact, it is full of ambiguity and wonder and awe and mystery and an invitation to a deep discovery of the divine. It is not at all about merit. It is all about grace. It is less an orthodoxy, a right teaching of things to define and defend as it is an orthopraxy, a right living a way of being and living and most of all loving, living in love, allowing love to have its way in us, to craft something beautiful in us, to transform us into people who live that love out into the world that so deeply needs it. The way that Jesus opens up is a path of surrender. It is the countercultural path of dying to self, of yielding our spirits to the Holy Spirit so that we may discover who we truly are, beautiful, beloved people made in the image of God, God who is love itself. And I think when we truly understand this, when we know it in our hearts, when we live from that knowledge, when our lives are rooted and grounded in the rock that can never be shaken, no matter what floodwaters may rise, no matter what wild winds of change blow, no matter what storms of opinion rage around us. Let it be so, O church, and so let it be. Amen.